0: Welcome to Mwango Spaces this Friday evening, from wherever it is you're listening to us from. My name is Eric Mokaya. I'm I'm based in Sweden. I'm an analyst and the founder of Mwango Capital, where we try to have engaging conversations on capital markets. I want to welcome Charlie and Martin. We'll start off by them introducing themselves and what they do on a day-to-day basis. Let's start with Charlie
1: and then Martin. Charlie? Thank thank you very very much for having me on. I'm the Chief Economist of Capital, and my job is to see how the global economy interacts with frontier markets, really. So whether that's Pakistan, Bangladesh, whether that's Kenya, Nigeria, and more broadly, the continent of Africa, which just fascinates me. So my job is to try and look at the global economy, talk about developments, forecast FX issues, debt problems, attempt to suggest what yields bonds ought to be trading at, whether or not we're going to get credit rating upgrades, downgrades. And I'm primarily doing that for equity and bond investors who are investing on the continent and South Asia and parts of Eastern Europe. So that's my role. Well, Thank you, Charlie. We'll talk more
0: later. I'm Martin from SIB. Karibu, Sana, Martin.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mongo. Thank you, Charlie. Nice to meet you, Charlie, and everyone in the audience. My name is Martin Kirimi. I had the SIB EuroBond desk this is a desk we started just shy of a year ago. We noticed a gap in the market whereby there wasn't any active, still now there isn't any active trading desk in the region, hence the reason we started it. The goal was basically to make sure that we deepen the EuroBond market, the local market. At the point of starting the desk, we had several banks in, that were actively involved in the EuroBond market space so we were able to also offer sharp pricing which is the key goal as to why we opened the desk is to be the first market maker in the region thus offering sharp prices to institutional investors and individual investors so right now the key goal as well is to make sure that individual investors get to see the kind of opportunities that lie within this space which is a very lucrative market, which of course we'll dial deep into it in this conversation as to the kind of returns that one can be able to maximize in this space and the kind of trading moves that an investor, let's say an individual investor, can take advantage of over and above, of course, institutions. I'm keenly looking forward to this conversation, especially also to learn some more from Charlie, because most of the recommendations that he does really affect my market, given that it's a very price-sensitive market, and any news in terms of credit ratings really have a very big impact as to how prices and yields essentially play out in our space. Thank you, and look forward to a very fruitful conversation. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Martin. The reason why we're discussing bonds and euro specifically is because like in the past two or three weeks, uh, we've seen the yields for eurobond, especially uh, that have to do with Kenya. For 2024, they've risen from around 6% and it should be around 20% last I checked. I think those are the things that you want to understand. We want to understand what drives this and what are some of the basics for this. we who are new to this space? What are the basics of bonds and Eurobonds? I'll start with Martin, and maybe you can explain to us what a Eurobond is and why Kenya has been involved in this space for a while.
2: Thank you, Eric. So, a Eurobond is essentially a fixed income instrument that is denominated by a currency that is not the domicile currency for the country that has borrowed, essentially. So Kenya we have tapped into these eurobond markets uh, since 2014 we have borrowed in total since 2014 exactly the USD 7.85 billion currently we have 7.1 billion dollars that is currently outstanding this we have borrowed through six bonds to be specific no seven because one of 750 million dollars already matured so we have outstanding of 7.1 with the recent one that is maturing in 2024, outstanding amount of $2 billion. So just to name the bonds, so we have the 2024, 2027, 2028, 2032, 2034, and 2048. 2034, we borrowed in June of last year, and we got a very good pricing of 6.3%. At the time, the Treasury got 5x of what it was borrowing. It was borrowing a billion dollars. And we got five times bids, and the Treasury just stick to its guns by not taking advantage of let's say a green shoe option, which we'll come to see later. That in hindsight, it wasn't a very smart move given how the yields have really skyrocketed this year. We got a 6.3% pricing. Right now, as Eric, you've mentioned that the yields really are short up to regions of 21%. I remember last week, we closed a trade for a client at 21 point, to be precise, 21.4%. This week, actually, we have seen yields come off with this evening, quoting prices at around 16.5%. That shows you the drop that has happened over the last one week. Key reasons for the drop, I think, is the global risk sentiment. Largely, just the past one week has been sort of better off than it was the prior weeks. And then the whole of SSA, because we as a desk, we check the whole of SSA, not just Kenya. So SSA bonds really rallied But Ghana today, and I'll talk more about Ghana, what happened in Ghana today. The other key thing was that we got a lot of local interest, and a lot of local interest has actually driven yields lower this week. But generally, yields this year have been on ascendancy, and one of the key reasons that This has been the case is because of the kind of negative publicity, if I can say, of what has been coming out of our local dailies. For instance, things to do with dollar shortages, that has created a very big negative effect to our yields. Things to do with the government has been unable to borrow to tap in the debt market, that still has an impact. But the IMF news that came out this week had a very big positive impact on our yields. And I think that the kind of returns that you're looking at in this eurobond market space, which you're looking at double digit on the dollar, 17, 18, even 15% vis-a-vis what you'll get in a call or a fixed deposit, an FDR, a bank on dollar terms, you'll be looking at something like a tops 4%, give or take. Yet, you're having an instrument that is giving you 15, 16%. It's such an opportunity for investors to take advantage of this kind of asset class. I mark you, the coupon payments on these instruments are tax free, and that is applicable to all SSA Eurobonds. All SSA Eurobonds have a tax free element to the coupon payments. So, effective return or the effective yield that a client gets. It's not of 20%, given that you're also not paying any withholding tax on these on this coupon payments. So we as SIB are really facilitating investors to take advantage of this asset class, individuals and institutions. The minimum ticket size, that is face value, is $200,000 and increments of $1,000 thereafter. So that means a client can buy 201, 202, but not two hundred, and then you're coming to add another 1000 No, it's $200,000 and increments of $1,000 after that. What is the other thing I'll mention? For one, to get into this Eurobond market space, you need a custodian who has a EuroClear custody account, which is what SIB is able now to offer investors. And for investors who already have their EuroClear account, SIB now is able to give you very sharp prices because we are essentially market makers in this space. Thank you, Eric. I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah, that's a good uh, introduction. I should say we have just posted a tweet with the yields for the euro bonds for last week. So you can check them out for those who are interested because you mentioned that there's a range of bonds from 2024 to 2032 and all that. I'll come back to you, but I I want to move to Charlie. Charlie. Charlie, how is the outlook for Eurobonds, especially across Africa? Since you deal with Africa, then maybe we can compare it to the markets you also monitor yourself. There's three
1: different stories here. There's the kind of this week's story, there's the 2022 story, and then there's a the long-term story. So this week, as Martin just mentioned, you've had the better news on the IMF money coming into Kenya. That's helpful. I mean, about a week ago, I sent out a note to clients just saying, these bonds And it's not just Kenya's. A whole host of bonds just looked surprisingly cheap. I mean, there's been an incredible move. I was talking to the Financial Times about it as well a few days ago. It really is one of the biggest moves in bonds that I've seen in 25 years in frontier credits. I mean, it's on a scale that kind of reminds me a little bit of the 97, 98 Asian crisis, to some extent, the global financial crisis. So it really is shocking. I sent out an email last week saying some look oversold and some do look interesting now. And it's not just Kenya that's had a rebound. I was just looking at the Angolan bonds, Angola, big oil exporter, and they've seen their bond price go from 60 cents on the dollar on one bond I look at on the 14th of July to, what, 70, 72 cents now. So that's like a 20% return in a week. I think people have said, OK, we've gone a little bit too far. Now, so that's the very short term story. Of if it's gone a little bit too far this week, the 2022 story is, of course, that US bonds have also gone down a great deal this year. And that's your baseline store of value for global bond investors. The US Treasury market is what counts more than anything else. And those bond prices have fallen significantly. It's been an awful year for bond investors, even in developed market bonds. And we know all the reasons. it's yes, The oil prices, it was that surge in food prices that has collapsed now, back to where it was before Russia's invasion. But still, there's been this inflation surge, the supply shocks. We know all those stories. So what we're getting in 2022 is the threat of recession coming, this big inflation surge, massive rate hikes that we haven't seen for 30 years in the United States, in 20 years in South Africa just yesterday. It's a real kind of set of events which are very negative for bond markets. And then there's the long term story. And Obviously, I'm going to be plugging the book that I wrote last year because because you could see Problems coming, and it was based on work I'd done back in 2019 on demographics and fertility. It's a book called *The Time Traveling Economist*, and that's highlighting which countries run into trouble and why. And one common theme over hundreds of years now has been that countries with low-income countries with relatively high fertility rates are at great risk of default. Most of the defaults in the late. 20th century and the second half of the 20th century were in countries where the fertility rate was above three children per woman. And the link is that when, when people have large families and they can't afford to send all those kids to school and on to university, then there's a lack of savings in the banking system. And that lack of savings means governments face pressure from their populations and the populations are saying, what are you going to do to make my country better off? And the governments say, well, there's not many savings locally. So what we'll do is we'll go and borrow from abroad. And until last year, that was incredibly cheap, as Martin pointed out. that you know, Kenya was able to borrow at 6% in dollars last year. It's an incredibly low figure. If you go back 20 years, to year 2000, mainstream emerging markets like Russia and Brazil, those were countries that had to borrow at 12% in dollars. But Kenya's so much better than them last year that they could borrow at 6%. So that, that's how cheap the borrowing had gone. So of course, governments have gone out and borrowed. And unfortunately, that hasn't translated into a big boost in export capacity. What have exports done to bring in the dollar revenues that will enable you to pay back the interest on that debt? And they haven't gone up enough in the vulnerable countries. And we're saying this isn't just a Kenya problem. This is a Pakistan problem. This is a Ghana problem, Nigeria, I think, too, and Angola, Zambia whole host of countries facing a struggle because they haven't seen exports grow enough to be able to service that debt at a time when people are saying, we just don't want risky bonds. We're worried enough about our country, whether it's America or UK or Germany, wherever it is, we're worried enough and we're going to keep our money at home and we don't even know what to buy. People are long cash, a lot in the West at the moment and they're avoiding pretty well everything. And the stuff that gets hit the most is euro bonds in, in countries that are seen as more fragile. And as I point out in the book, that there is some reason to assume they're more fragile. It's not investors making this up. It didn't matter a year ago because global interest rates were so low. So what? It's a bit like Bitcoin. Global interest rates were so low hey, let's take a punt on a speculative asset. But once interest rates go up, okay, then people have to get very serious about where they're putting their money. And That's unfortunately what we're seeing. So I think to come back to where I started at the beginning, we've got the short-term story saying bonds have just been a bit oversold. And I think that's true in the last week or so. It's been a really nice week actually to own the bonds, but the underlying story of can countries actually manage the debt load that they've taken on over the last 10 years, that means we're still going to have a tough time. I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about this for a good year or more, perhaps. So, anyway, that's where I'm standing at the moment. I'll stop talking now.
0: Perhaps a follow-up question, Charlie. What are some of the countries that you're keenly watching in terms of them falling to distress level, given the yields rising so much?
1: Well, I outlined them all in a report about a year and a half ago, and I've been updating that same chart, which is really helpful. It's a chart of interest payments, as a percentage of government revenues versus interest payments as a percentage of GDP. So how much, if the Kenyan government's getting 100 shillings in tax revenues, what proportion of that is going out on payments just for debt? But I did that for all all the countries. And also, which countries are paying a hefty amount of interest relative to the size of their economy? And the countries that were most vulnerable over the last couple of years have been Sri Lanka, and um, they didn't have an IMF deal. And in fact, they, not only did they not have an IMF deal, but they had cut, slashed taxes in 2019 in the hope that it was going to boost the economy. And then instead of it boosting the economy, we got COVID in 2020 and then no tourism revenues. They got hit from every angle. And then the next ones were Pakistan and Egypt and Ghana. Pakistan had an IMF relationship, but not a very good one. Ghana didn't want an IMF relationship. Egypt had very good relationship with the IMF and a whole load of support from the Gulf. So those are the four that look most vulnerable on the chart. But of those four, obviously, Egypt looks best because it's had nearly $15 billion promised it from the Gulf countries in since March. And they devalued the currency um, and they're working on another IMF deal. They're the safest of the bunch. Ghana said, oh, we do actually need an IMF deal after all. And Pakistan, having done all sorts of populist measures that were annoying the IMF, And not annoying the IMF, because it's up to the IMF. The IMF is saying, look, if you do this, you will be bankrupt. And Pakistan's government fell over these issues, actually, in March, April. And the new government's come in and said, yeah, OK, fair enough. I mean, they're probably saying it's all the IMF's fault, which is a typical politician thing to do pass the responsibility onto somebody else, but actually Pakistan had no choice. So they've now done some changes on their taxes, on their subsidies, and the IMF has said it will give a disbursement to them soon. Those are the most vulnerable, but it's not just them. I mean, Zambia obviously already said it wouldn't be paying back its bonds in twenty one, I think it was, or late 2020. No, 2020. And They're part of a common framework, and then Ethiopia is still supposed to be restructuring. So Laos is the next one, Laos Democratic People's Republic, but they don't have a Europe bond. But that's another one, another country in trouble right now. And El Salvador, actually, which went for the whole Bitcoin thing in a massive way. And it's backfiring at every level. Th- th- those are some of the vulnerable countries.
0: All right, I'll get back to you. Martin, maybe you could give a, a bit of perspective on how do... Individual investors get to invest, especially in Euro bonds. Since you help clients invest in these bonds, especially Kenyans, how do they get to invest in these bonds?
2: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Charlie, for the nice elaborations. Let me answer Eric's question and then I just a quick follow up on what Charlie was mentioning on the countries that he's seeing in distress. So, for individual investors, you need to go to an investment bank or a bank that has a Euro clear solutions or services. So, SIB being one of them. Where we buy for you a Eurobond. You choose which of the six Kenya Eurobonds or even any SSA Eurobond. I like when Charlie was mentioning about Ghana because Ghana has some really sky high yields, given how he mentioned that they are at risk of distress. So you'll see that a client can choose any SSA Eurobond or even US Treasuries or any market or frontier market or developed market bond. And then we're able to hold that for him and our custody services. So they fill in an application form, we give them very sharp prices on which eurobond they'll wish to purchase, and then voila. And then on the coupon date payments, they go ahead and receive their coupons. If they wish to go ahead from a trading perspective, because like when you mentioned that we have been quite sharp movements in terms of pricing over the last one week, case and point, I want to mention like Kenya 24s and 48s where, like Chad was mentioning, that bonds are really oversold. That's very true, especially on the long end of Kenya. We have seen quite a very big interest on the long end of the curve. So you see, like, for instance, the 48s bounced from a low of 53 53 cents to the dollar to right now they are trading at around 63 cents to the dollar. So that's a 10-point move. So in a million dollars, ten point move, that's a hundred thousand dollars. That shows you the level of volatility that is in this space, and you need an investment bank who, that uh, will offer you share prices if you are interested in more of your in and out plays, over and above, let's say, holding a uh, security to maturity. The beauty about holding a eurobond is that. And as much as now you could be underwater, as most of the bond investors who are in it at the beginning of the year, this has been a really, really tough year for bond investors. The beauty about now holding the bond is that at least over and above now, the thing you'll just be carrying is a credit risk because the bond will not essentially, at least at maturity, you should be able to be paid your par value. So it's not what you take, for instance, in a stock market or in a, holding a stock, where it could just go to zero and you are just you are left with nothing to take home. So with a bond, at least you're assured. I don't want to say you're assured, but you, you do carry a, a level of credit risk, given that it's a bond. At the end of the day, you're still issued it's money that you've lent out. So aside from the credit risk, as at least you are sort of guaranteed that you'll go ahead and get your face value upon maturity or upon, for instance, if a government, a sovereign comes out and issues uh, a tender on, on those bonds. So speaking of tenders, I'd like to elaborate how that that plays out. I've already seen two that have, have come to fruition during my time running the desk. This will be Rwanda last year. Rwanda did issue a tender offer on the Rwanda 23s that are maturing in 2023. They had borrowed $400 million, so they issued a tender offer. Right now, outstanding of the participants that didn't take up the tender offer is less than $100 million. As they borrowed now 2031s, uh, they borrowed for a bond last year of 2031. They actually got a fantastic pricing of, I think, 5.4%, if my memory serves me right, but it was a 54 5.5%, give or take. That shows you how cheap it was to get funding last year. They borrowed $600 million. The other country that I've seen coming and issuing a tender offer is Angola in April this year. Actually, like Charlie was mentioning about Angola, Angola has received a lot of... Earlier on a lot of positive sentiments given first of all the fiscal policies that they started implementing last year and also the rating upgrade they got this year. And then of course the cream at the top was the how the oil market was performing. In April of this year, they got over two billion and then I think two point five or two point eight billion dollars. And then they issued a tender offer on their 10 2025s because they do carry quite a very big coupon. But still, for the investors who didn't participate in the tender, the bonds are still outstanding and they do trade. Of all the SSA Eurobonds, I think Angola has had the narrowest of spreads given how the interest on the fiscal policies and how the oil markets have been performing. So the spreads have been narrower vis a vis what we have been seeing in other SSAs. Key point being Ghana. Ghana has really taken a beating this year. I like what Charlie mentioned that Ghana was quote unquote, I'll say quote unquote, they're bragging about not going to IMF. They'll they say they they didn't want to go to IMF or anything of the sort. But they have such large maturities in the short end of the curve from 2025, 2026, 2027. They have two, 2029. They have quite a huge pile of maturities that are falling due in a short time span. They have taken quite a bit. But when the IMF news came out at the tail end of June, to be precise, I I remember it was very well, it was a Thursday, I think 30th of June or 1st of July, one of those two days, that IMF news came out. Just to show you how volatile these instruments are, is that on the short end of the curve, actually across the curve, we did see bonds rallying as much as six points on the day. So that Friday, they rallied six points. The following Monday, another five points, another six points the following day, and then on Wednesday and Thursday, now profit tickets are kicking off. So for investors, international is investors need to, if you can trade these instruments on hold to maturity, where you're buying the bond and holding maturity, you get your coupon payment, You right now you're buying at very deep discounts, or over and above that, you can have another section of your portfolio where you can now get your in and outs kind of trading moves. And in that space, you need a market maker, a broker who's very good. In getting you sharp prices because these are instruments that are traded on OTC basis. So it's all about how many counterparties can you face? And that's what SIB brings to the table, because it's all about how many counterparties can you face. Just to give you color of the seven point one billion dollars that Eurobonds that are currently outstanding for Kenya, I'll say around two billion is held by Kenyan institutions, give or take. Should be just $2 $2 billion or slightly above $2 billion by my own estimation. So that leaves around $5 billion that is with global market players. So you need a broker who knows which doors to knock when and how, so as to get you the best prices when you want in and out. And I think that's what we are able to bring to the table. Thank you, Eric. All
0: right. Thank you, Martin. So Charlie, back to you now. I wanted you to understand in terms of investing in euro bonds, what are some of the things that you advise your clients to look at when they are examining a euro bond in terms of issuance? And perhaps also you can give us a bit of perspective on how countries go about issuing a euro bond. So if that country like Kenya wants to issue a euro bond, what are the steps they take from just stating that they want to raise to finally having the money and then also paying it back to
1: investors in terms of coupon rates and all. Okay, so you've got countries that have never borrowed before. And I've spoken to a few in the last few years that, that are in a position of thinking about let's diversify our borrower. Let's not just rely on the IMF or the World Bank or perhaps some big loan from China, but let's go to the international markets and borrow. And the first thing they have to do is get credit ratings. I and mean, the credit rating agencies occasionally come in for abuse, usually only when ratings are going down, of course, not so much when ratings are going up. But the rating agencies come in and they do what most sell-side economists like myself would do, which is to then look at a country's repayments of debt in coming years. It's basically, we're we're a bit like bank managers and you're coming to the markets for a loan and the bank manager is saying, well, can you pay back the loan? And when a country hasn't issued before there's a bit of uncertainty a country often has to pay a slightly higher interest rate just because they're an unknown borrower but we're only talking say half a percent or something and then they go out and borrow and then you get the credit rating agency you employ a couple of banks two or three or four banks whatever and the banks like renaissance capital or jp morgan or any of the other guys will take the government around the minister of finance often central bank governor often officials like that and take them to new york and london And put them in front of a whole load of debt investors, bond fund managers who are looking at maybe 20 countries, maybe 50 countries, and they come in and they look at the numbers as well and do their own estimates of whether they think countries are going to repay. And then they put in an order and say, yes, actually, we would like to own a little bit of Kenya's eurobond. And it's only a few weeks after that that the money then turns up at the central bank or ministry of finance. And the government then has the ability to spend that. And what are the sort of things we look at? We look at current account deficits, which is what is the current account? It's it's exports of merchandise goods. So in Kenya's case, things like tea, coffee, but it's also revenues coming from Kenyan airways, for example, or tourism, it's dollars coming in or euros coming in perhaps from remittances, from Kenyans working abroad. And people are looking at all of those numbers and saying, "Okay, well, there's a whole load of dollars and euros coming into Kenya through their exports of goods and services. But Kenya's then paying a big, chunky import bill for, let's say, petrol. And so what's the overall situation? And often in low-income countries, it's in deficit. The current account, which is adding up all of these things, is in deficit. So it's a question of, well, is this debt somehow going to help the country improve its current account so it'll be able to export more is the government taxing enough or is this just a replacement for taxes if it looks like the government's not got the political ability to raise money at home and they're going to the markets because they just are unable to collect taxes at home you kind of think well this isn't going to work in the long run so people look at the budget deficit they look at the current account deficit they look at the state of foreign exchange reserves and this is what the rating agencies are doing too and so we put all of that together. And then when you become a borrower who's done this a number of times, then markets get more comfortable. And people say, yeah, I can see where Kenyan eurobonds are trading, which for the last few years has been a pretty good place. And they'll probably still turn up at that meeting when the finance minister or central bank governor turns up in the city. But they don't necessarily need to because they've got a sense of whether the bonds are trading already in the market. And they say, yeah, OK, I'm happy to lend some more money to Kenya and get my six or seven percent last year. In fact, last year, People are so desperate for yields that as I think Martin mentioned at the beginning, you actually had five times more bids for Kenya's euro bond than Kenya actually wanted to issue. To some extent, that was inflated. People put in bigger bids than they really want for a bond because it's up to the banks to decide who gets the allocation of all these pension funds or mutual funds trying to lend money to Kenya to buy a part of the bond. It's up to the banks to decide who gets how much? So you might have one mutual fund manager in London saying, I want $100 million worth of this bond that Kenya's going to issue and going to pay me 6 or 7% on every year. And you've got a pension fund in America saying they also want it. And so who gets the $100 million? Or do you just spit it 50-50? So the banks get to decide. So anyway, what often happens is that investors then pretend they want $300 million in the hope that they actually end up with $100 million. And that was very... Common in the last few years for people to say that they're paying more than they actually are. Is that enough explanation? Yes, yes, yes that's a good explanation. So may, Ali, you can pick up from there and maybe give
3: it a bit more flavour. Yes, thank you. And it's been a fascinating discussion so far. I would just add a couple of things. I would firstly add that in Kenya, we're facing an election and it was comments, I think, that the former prime minister, Ryle Odinga made at Chatham House, where he spoke of a possible renegotiation on the debt, which was the catalyst for the sharp price move that we saw, in part, I believe. Subsequently, I think it was on Bloomberg yesterday, where the other side, William Rutter, said there was no need for a negotiation. So in that you see very clearly a very binary situation and we've got the election coming up and therefore I think that's in part led to that significant repricing. Of course, if you look across sub-Saharan Africa, as Martin was saying, we've had a tremendous, and as Charlie also said, a sort of once in a 25-year move. I recall this in the late 90s and in the mid-90s when we saw this sort of move. But I think that's also a function of what's happening globally, which is higher interest rates, quantitative tightening, supposedly reducing the amount of liquidity. It's really gone from, as we can see, from feast last year for frontier markets and emerging markets to famine this year. That's what's driven, I think, these sharp moves. The question, I think, is everyone's now looking at balance sheets, government balance sheets, with much more scrutiny. And there's less room for manoeuvre, I think, for many countries. And of course, we've had these massive accidents that have happened, Sri Lanka being the most obvious one. So I don't see us returning to the interest rates that we've had last year. And I think it's also incumbent on policymakers now to tell their story effectively and credibly, And I think the markets will reward those who are credible and punish those who are not credible quite severely. And therefore, I think we're like a little bit of a laboratory experiment over the next few weeks as to how we handle our narrative. And of course, we've got this sort of very binary situation with the election, with the two sides seemingly saying different things. And, of course, a renegotiation, just to get to Martin's point, means that you're not going to get redeemed at par. You're going to be taking a haircut, and that's why you've got some of these bonds. I think, in you know, Zambia obviously is priced for some kind of haircut. Uh, Ethiopia seems to me to be priced for some kind of haircut. And at a 1,000 over or around there, you're in the middle of whether you're going to take a haircut or whether you're going to make out like a bandit. But those are the observations I would make. And just a couple quick, two other points. Martin said $2 billion is being held by local investors. There's a very big market coming. Some banks have really built up big Eurobond portfolios. It'll be interesting to see how that is treated at the half-year earnings release mark.
0: A quick one, Ali, maybe double-click on that. Which banks are these that you have seen them accumulate? I would prefer not to say it,
3: but I mean, (laughs) it's one of the tier one banks which have built up a very big position. It's not clear to me what price that was done at. But similarly, now what we're seeing is this Divergence between local interest rates of 13%, 14% on long dated paper, under subscription, and the Kenya shilling bonds. And the question is something's got to give here, right? I mean, either Kenya bonds denominated in shillings have got to go much higher in terms of interest rates, or alternatively, the Kenya shilling has now got to move in order to make up that adjustment. And it seems to me that. These rates of undersubscription are signaling that potentially asymmetric move is coming in the local bond market because those prices cannot be justified. And therefore, again, it'll be interesting to see how the local bond portfolios, which banks in Kenya are overexposed to, is going to be treated again at the half year mark as well. Very
0: interesting points, Ali, thank you. Once again, Thank for that, we are keenly watching that. Ah, Charlie, I see you
1: have something to add. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Raylo Odinga's statements, Ali Khan, was absolutely right to flag that. The comments he made back in March were important, but I don't think it's likely to make much difference who wins the presidential election in terms of whether or not Kenya has to renegotiate. The problems, the, the, the debt pile is significant. The current account deficit is significant. The currency still looks overvalued. The budget deficits still pretty sizable. And global markets are not in a great place for countries that have become reliant on external borrowing. I'm not sure. I mean, the election just adds to the uncertainty. It means that we don't know who the president is yet, who will have to be making some very tough decisions when they come into power. And we've got tax rises coming in Kenya and they need to be pretty significant and spending cuts probably too. That, it doesn't matter who wins. That's the unfortunate reality.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I think uh, for those who are are not familiar with some of the comments, I've attached some of the comments that Raila made that was, I think, in March to the Twitter space. So you can look up there. What he said is that they may consider restructuring of the bonds. And I don't think that's a renegotiation. I think that's what he said. If you're uncomfortable with some of the terms, you renegotiate. So I think those kind of comments usually rattle markets. And I think that's why... Uh, The euro bonds, as as Ali and Charlie have said, rallied that much in terms of yields. So I think this week, the other uh, presidential candidate was also on Bloomberg and on Reuters also, trying to speak about the same. I'll try to retrieve some of the comments he said and share them in the space again. At this point, we are almost at the halfway mark, so it's good to let the audience know that if you want to ask some of the questions that you have. You can either DM my co-host, Bonnie, here is monitoring the DMs. And the other way you can reach us is also to look at the pinned tweet and write a question just below it. We'll check it out. The other way is also to request the mic, and then you can give you the opportunity to ask our able- uh, guests uh, the questions that you have in mind. I should say I see a host of people in the audience, so really nice that you can join us, all of you. Reginald, I also see you there, so if you want to also come and participate in the conversation, you're most welcome. So back to Martin a little bit. Martin, what's the demand like, especially from local investors presently, on the euro bonds? Since you launched the desk, how has been the uptick in terms of bonds, the euro bonds? I know Kenyans are very heavy especially on uh, euro bonds and lately kenyans have been heavy a lot on the kenyan bonds they've invested a lot the banks have a lot of exposure to that we've seen a lot of especially the big banks increasing their exposure to government bonds but then again in the last two weeks or three weeks what you've seen is also like the amount of bonds that the government has issued especially the ifbs they've been hugely undersubscribed i think the latest one is around 26 percent subscription rate so as that have you seen that also in terms of people not investing more in bonds, especially as the election's near. So Martin, over to you.
2: Thank you, Eric. I think I'd like to emphasize what Ali can mentioned earlier, and it speaks large volumes as to the kind of interests that we have been seeing of lately over the last two months, to be precise. There's been a very big mismatch on the kind of yields you're getting on the dollar vis-a-vis what you're getting on your cash-denominated bonds. For instance, like to give the example always of the two-year paper. The two-year paper giving you the FXD, that is your normal fixed government bonds, is yielding around 11.5% give or take, and that is still subjected to withholding tax. Okay, If let's say you're a bank or banking institution, okay, you're not subjected to withholding tax, but of course at the bottom, you'll be hit from a PBT perspective. Go ahead and warehouse the, your liabilities in a dollar asset in your Kenya 2024s that are yielding you 15, 16, 17% at the time. Okay, we touched 15% in May, early June, now after Raila Odinga's comments, we now got quite a sky high, a sharp rise in yields to around 16, 17%. And then towards the end of the month, now we hit all the way to 20%. So when you compare those kind of returns on a dollar denominated asset, and you're buying it at a very deep discount, it's tax-free. So from an effective return perspective vis-à-vis what you'll get in a cash dominated bond has really driven quite a large number of locals into the European market space. And I actually think they should look at this space because the kind of yields that are in them are quite ridiculous. Because I come from the belief that in as much as the global markets are really flagging Kenya red, I don't think we are really over the edge or we are anywhere near to topple over the edge, given that we are a pretty diversified economy. And I like, even when Charlie was mentioning the four countries that he's keenly looking at, Kenya was fortunately not among them. And I think we are far off from being really all over the edge of the cliff. So to answer your question, we have seen interest from locals, even high net worth investors, and financial institutions because if let's say I'll talk from a name perspective you get your liabilities at even give, give or take let's say your dollar liabilities you're a bank you're an ALM manager you're like okay cool I'll even hit at four percent yet you can get you can warehouse in that in a dollar asset that yields you even let's say at the very least 15 percent because just a month ago, we didn't even touch 15. Talking about 15% was sort of out of the ordinary. Yet early this month now, we even touched 20. I was mentioning last week, we were able to close for a client at a big trade at 21.4%. So this is a client who gets now his liabilities at 4%. And then his warehousing is in dollar assets yielding even, let's say, of 15%. So, from a net interest margin perspective, this is a client who will be able to book double digit on the dollar, tax free. It still passes through the PBT, street goes to the PAT, and there's a very good ROE to offer investors, to offer easy shareholders, for instance, because it was a financial institution. So we're getting quite a lot of this interest and I see locals are taking advantage of this and I think they should take advantage of this kind of returns that the Eurobond asset class, that is especially the Kenya Eurobonds, do present. Just to add more color, you did mention that the Kenya government has been seeing quite lackluster interest in the primary market. I think one of the reasons is that they have shown their hand in terms of desperation, in my view. You see that these days the bids are pretty aggressive given that Everybody can tell how desperate they are in terms of uh, getting funding. And of course, now there's the element of uncertainty. That yield curve has really been on an upward trajectory, especially on the short end of the curve. And then to add the spice to the cocktail, you're looking at the dollar yields of these other fronts that on an on incomparable level vis-a-vis your local bonds. So all that is a cocktail mix that is not uh, been pleasant to the GOK, i.e., uh, the Kenyan Treasury. I hope that answers your question, Eric.
0: Yes, I think so. But you seem quite optimistic about the Kenyan situation. What makes you optimistic about it? Martin?
2: Okay, okay. Here's how I look at it. We are a pretty diversified economy, in my view. Do we have challenges? Oh, yes. Quite a very big challenge. i like to echo Charlie's comments about the next government will have it tough. No doubt, 100%. But I really don't think that... We are really at that tipping point because we do carry a very good favor from the likes of IMF. To show you how much investors take take courage of this kind of news is that when the IMF news came out the day before yesterday or early this week, we did see quite a rally on our eurobonds. Just showing you that Kenya is a very big economy to be allowed to go bust, in my view. So I do carry the belief that we're not there yet. Do we have challenges? Quite a large number of them. We can't compare us with Ghana, for instance, just for color. Ghana today, news came out that very early, just before trading happens. And trading happens in European market, trading happens, is active on the London market. From 10 a.m. Kenyan time to 7 p.m. Kenyan time. That's when the European market is active. So news came out just before market opened that Ghana FX reserves shrunk from just sharp $9 billion in March to just $3.3 billion. So that spooked investors, dumped everything early in the morning. Funny enough, they bounced back up afternoon. We did see quite a dead cat bounce on them in the afternoon. But... Ideally, when you look at our FX reserve, they're still robust. We're still technically a robust economy when you look at it from the grand scheme of things. But I think Charlie here will even give more color into it. But from where I sit, I think that we're not anywhere soon to go bust, in my view.
0: All right. So I'll get back to uh, Charlie and Ali soon. Kevin has a question. Kevin.
4: Thank you very much, Eric, Ali, Charlie and Martin. My question, I know Ali has mentioned that he prefers not to mention by names, the specific banks, but Martin had earlier on said something close to that. And he said, you know, there are a couple of banks that have really built up on their Eurobond portfolio. So maybe without mentioning names, one of the things I'd like to know is where do we get the data even for just specifically for local holders of this bond, if there's anywhere we can get that data? Or how would he then know that two billion worth of Eurobonds is held by locals? So that's my first question. And on the second one still to Martin, I'd like him to please expound on the tender offers. How does it work? He mentioned that Rwanda, on part of the Eurobond Rwanda twenty-three, is had some four hundred million dollar outstanding. How does the tender offering work?
2: Thank you. Over to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your questions. So how do I know like approximately $2 billion is held locally? Number one is through earnings call. So you're listening to various banks when they announce their earnings. Uh, during analyst calls, they will mention the kind of holdings that they do have in their books. Secondly, you can check banks' balance sheets and some of them hold them on available for sale or HDM. Available for sale and in the available for sale segment, we'll, you'll see Kenya government and then other securities. So most of them warehouse them under other securities, that line item there are other banks who actually are holding them through PNL so Kenya government uh, that should be the first line item and then under that other securities so I don't want to say that blanketly that when you see that line item other securities and IFS or under HTM or under health or trading it implies that these are euro bonds I'm just saying that, To add color to now earnings call, this is the other way, this is the other line item you can, this is where they actually have warehouse in the balance sheets. So your question number two was about the tender offer. Mm -hmm. So what happens is like, for instance, Rwanda and Angola, the leader rangers will come out and issue a sort of a memo to all the large institutional investors or the large holders, basically, essentially more often than not, is usually real money that is holding these bonds. They'll come out and say, like, we'll wish to buy at X price. A very good example is when Angola came out this year, they mentioned their price. I can't remember the actual price. But now it depends at, let's say, for instance, you, you bought these bonds at 105 and they come and issue a tender offer at 103 on price form. It doesn't make sense. So the people who did not make sense, they didn't accept the tender offer. For well, the ones that make sense, they, they actually accepted the tender offer and they were paid at the price. One of the ways of knowing when a tender offer is coming out is early on that there will be talk on the street. And this is where now you need a very good broker, which exactly this is what we are very good at. Because there will be talk on the street and more often than not, you'll see Bloomberg will come forward and say that Angola is preparing to issue a $2.5 billion loan, $2.8 billion euro bond. So automatically, investors go like, wait a second, one of the reasons why they want to issue that is because the 2025s are really pricey, okay, in terms of their coupon payment. Just for color, the Angola 2025, for instance, is paying a coupon of 9.5%. Immediately, investors understood that if these guys are coming in the market this big, they're issuing a $2.8 billion euro bond, automatically, they're going to pay off there's going to be a tender offer on the short end of the curve. That's that 2025, that 9.5%. Those 2025s rallied like crazy. There's a time I tried to get some for a client in March. I couldn't get them because everyone just wants to hold them because they know there's a tender offer coming in the offering. Because why would a sovereign take such a big, big, a very big euro bond if not to pay off? What is outstanding, especially given that it was really issued at a premium, at a really expensive rate, that is 9.5%. Of course, everybody wanted a piece of that pie. But now, if you're an investor, you got in at 105, like I said, I can't remember the intricacies of where exactly they bought it. But if you bought it at 105 and they come with a tender out at 103, of course, it doesn't make sense. So there's still some amount that are outstanding. And that will run until now upon maturity, which now will be paid the maturity at, and they were able to borrow 2032s at 8.8.75. So you're seeing all of a sudden they were able now to extend their maturity because at that point in time, they're enjoying quite a favorable rating in the market. And over and above that, the, the oil markets and the spreads were really narrow at the time on Angola papers and they're able to get a good price of 8.75 and a longer maturity of 10 years. I hope I've answered your question. Thank you.
4: Kevin, I hope that answered you. Thanks a lot. It answered. Maybe just the last follow-up question to Martin was, he mentioned one of the sources would be the earnings call where some of the banks would sort of clarify. Is there any bank, I might have missed it, that on the earnings call did clarify on their eurobond holdings? Because for sure, I do understand that, yeah, euro bonds would be thrown under other securities. But I think Martin and I agree that it's not a de facto answer that the other securities would indeed be euro bonds. But... Martin, maybe i missed it. Is there a bank that outrightly came out and disclosed their eurobond holdings? Thank you.
2: like the way you've gone around to make sure that I mention a name, which Ali can also avoid it, to mention a name. You'll allow me to kindly pass on that question because that, of course, now will make me literally answer which banks are this? So kindly allow me just to not answer this question. What I can ask is maybe even check some of the banks' annual reports. Like I said, most of the banks that are in the tier one banks, but of late, we have been able to be clients to some of small tier two and tier three banks who are coming to this space, which have been able to facilitate for them to purchase Eurobonds at very, very sharp prices. Thank you. All
0: right. Martin does not want to reveal his client. He's pleading the fifth, Kevin. So go away, Kevin. I see Reginald here, but I want to first give Ali and Charlie an opportunity to perhaps explain to us what's the situation in Ghana. We hear a lot of people mentioning it a lot, but what is happening in Ghana presently? Why are the yields so high and how is the situation different from Kenya? So maybe I'll start with Ali and then Charlie can join. Thanks.
3: Uh, My understanding of Ghana, and I'm sure Charlie will give you a, a better picture of it, is that essentially the Ghanaian finance minister and the president we're trying to avoid going to the IMF in particular and saying that they could narrow the funding gap via raising this tax. I think it was an e-levy of some kind. But I think here we got a classic case of where the market simply didn't believe the government, or and this is where the narrative didn't stack up, the numbers weren't stacking up. If you looked at the inflation rate, you looked at the currency it was clear that there was a genuine sense of disbelief in the government's narrative. And I think that's what happened. And uh, that credibility gap, the IMF was a dirty word for many years, but they've been showing a a kinder, gentler face. And I think uh, the market really was saying, your time is up. You've got to get the IMF in. A classic example where this went all the way to the wire is somewhere like Sri Lanka, where I think everyone thought they needed to get the IMF in earlier, they didn't. And then we saw what happened in the Rajapaksa situation. So I think credibility gap, lack of belief in the government strategy, numbers not stacking up, and I think they're going for a pretty big package now from the IMF. The shortfall that they're looking to plug is around 2.5 billion is the program request that they've made.
1: If I could jump in, Ghana had this oil discovery back in two thousand ten or eleven. Well, the oil discovery was gonna come on stream soon. And the government started to borrow a great deal and spend the proceeds of that oil boom before the oil money actually arrived. And they've been running big budget deficits and for many, many years in Ghana. I mean I did wonder a few years ago whether if Takana had really taken off on the oil story in Kenya, we might have seen a similar story. But what happened was You got to 2019, and Ghana's debt or budget deficit was about 7% of GDP. So they were borrowing a lot before COVID. And then that number blew out to 16% of GDP in 2020. Now, Kenya was much more responsible, and so also faced the challenge of COVID, but the deficit went from 8% in 2019, so a little bit wider than Ghana's, to only 9%, according to the IMF figures for 2020. So it doubled in, in Ghana it rose only marginally in Kenya. I did write at the end of 2020 that Ghana had to do austerity in early 21. It would be sensible to bring in the IMF in early 2021 as well. They didn't. Uh, And the budget deficit was still 12% of GDP last year in Ghana, while it was 8% in Kenya, according to the IMF numbers. So they've just borrowed too much for a long time and filled the gap with an awful lot of dollar debt. And they're, they're government debts higher than Kenya's, their budget deficit's bigger than Kenya's. The currency is the cheapest in Africa on a real effective exchange rate model. That's the obvious safety valve of what needs to happen for a country to try and resolve some of its imbalances, is to try and boost exports and limit imports through having a really cheap currency. But it hasn't been enough. That's gone on. and, And there's also been the pride element, which I'm very sympathetic to, of just saying, we don't want to have to go back to the IMF. We want to be able to manage without that support. And when I come from a country which was still going to the IMF in the 1970s when I was a kid, so I'm kind of used to, I think every country goes through its IMF stage. Arguably one of the most successful economies in Africa in the last 30 years, in fact in the world in the last 30 years, is Mauritius. And Mauritius was seen as a colony of the IMF by Mauritius' opposition leaders back in the 1980s. I don't think there's a great problem with using the cheap financing the imf provides i think it's a very sensible thing for governments to do it's cheaper than borrowing in international markets when it doesn't carry the same kind of obligations that borrowing from china does actually uh the chinese often want you to spend any money you borrow from china on chinese companies to buy chinese goods Uh, the imf doesn't make those sort of conditions so i don't think there's a problem going to the imf but ghana's leaders didn't want to do that, and in doing it late carries a lot of costs. At least they didn't do it too late, which is what Sri Lanka did. So, Ghana's been sensible enough. I mean, just to point out on what's happened today, Martin mentioned that news report this morning that reserves had fallen from nine billion to three billion. I think the reason the bonds bounced in the afternoon is because actually the officials have said, "Oh, that was a mistake. It was a misunderstanding of gross reserves versus net reserves," and so it's not as bad as that. And I think that's partly why the, the, the markets recovered a little bit this afternoon. But they are definitely in a dangerous space. All right, thank you.
0: Reginald, now I want to bring you in because of maybe policy implications of some of these Eurobonds. From your perspective now, maybe you can give us a bit of context to how the Kenyan situation is and what faces the next government in terms of Eurobonds and all. Caribou, Reginald. And also, maybe you can also speak about the crowding out effect in terms of borrowing locally. And now that the yields are rising internationally, the government is being forced to tap into local loans.
5: How's the situation like for the next government? Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Minsky once said, success breeds disregard of the possibility of failures. The absence of serious financial difficulties over a substantial period leads to a euphoric economy in which short-term financing of long-term position becomes normal way of life. And that statement aptly describes the Kenyan government, where, one, because of the Kibaki era, we entered a euphoric economy whose macroeconomic fabric was not as strong as everyone wanted to paint it to be. And we started borrowing. Yes, we did the gymnastics of rebasing GDP to make the figures look good enough for us to go borrow cheaply on the Eurobond. And we went to borrow. Yes, there is information asymmetry between borrowers and lenders. And in this case, the borrower normally has more information than, than the lenders. The Kenya economy borrowed Eurobond predominantly short term to invest one in long term projects. So there was a mismatch between the funding and where that funding was put. Two, there was a currency mismatch where we borrowed in dollars to put into projects that generate Kenya shilling revenue and do not increase our exports. Our exports are still three times less or imports are three our exports. That means we import three times more than our exports. And the exports have not been growing commensurate to one the projects that have been invested in using especially the foreign denominated debt. Because you don't borrow in one currency to invest in projects that generate another currency. Then you end up with a problem where you have reserves which are majorly funded by debt. The Kenyan reserves are funded by debt. And that's why now they can't support the shilling. Because they can't tap into the Eurobond market. They will normally vigorously support the shilling because they know that they're going to issue a Eurobond. Then the reserves go back to normal standards. The truth of the matter is that we have debt funded reserves. And as long as we kind of sl- locked out one because of pricing out of that market, our reserves are actually in a very precarious state. And over the years, you'll find remittances have become one of the largest foreign currency earners. Now, you cannot build a policy based on the good feeling of someone seated in the U.S. that they want to send their relative money back home. That is a useless <laughs> policy to build an economy on. So you find that in that situation that we are, and if you look at the stylized facts of the studies that have been done on debt crises, uh, currency crises that have happened previously, the Asian one, the Russian one, the Latin American one, and, and even the recent 2008, 2009. If you look at the stylized facts, what are those common things that were common in most of the countries that ended up in a uh, credit crisis or a currency crisis? Now, one, you see that there was a deterioration of balance sheets, both of households and firms, banks, and the government. So there's a deterioration of balance. Sheet. And that's the same thing here, that especially for the Kenyan government's balance. It has been deteriorating. Before the crisis, you'll find current account deficit will shoot up and our current ad- account continued to widen, as I've mentioned before. A debt-to-reserve ratio has also been deteriorating. There are so many stellar effects you would pinpoint in the Kenyan situation right now. That point to the aspect that Kenya cannot grow out of the problem that it is in. Kenya cannot say, no, we'll be able to repay our debts, we'll grow the economy, we'll grow our exports. If you've not grown them in the last 16 years, and it's a question that we always ask IMF, all your reports about how good Kenya is are all predicated on exports doubling or tripling in the next three, four, five years, which is an unfounded claim and principle which they have been pushing to make Kenya look good we also need to understand that the Kenyan economy is not as big as people want to make the Kenyan economy is actually a very small economy even in the african context if you combine I think most of the East Africa community uh, economies they are not the same size as the Nigerian economy that just explains to you how small the Kenyan economy if you take the balance sheet of all the top six banks in the country which control 80 percent of all the banking in the country are not half of standard Bank, South Africa's asset size in terms of size so when when lenders decide to ignore some of these facts and still lend to the borrower, then I think it is only deservably because the main risk of a lender is that the borrower is going to default, and that's why you price in that risk. So I would want to agree with Charlie and Ali that say, you say, the new government that is going to come in the first six months, they literally just have to deal with the debt problem, and there's nothing else they can do. And they should not lie to themselves that they will be able to grow out of the current mess that we have. When you then look internally to the domestic borrowing, I'm actually not worried more about the crowding out on the domestic borrowing because that's something that can easily be sorted. I'm more worried about the fiscal expansion that is crowding out private demand. So you find most of the demand that is in the Kenyan economy is driven by government spending. So if the government now, which is under the shackles of IMF, and decide to go austerity, and we have not been building and supporting demand because incomes have not been growing, uh, then we are seeing ourselves in a period where output may actually start to fall. In a nutshell, wh- what am I saying? People are beginning to realize that their excitement was on incorrect expectations, and because of those dynamics, you start seeing one kills definitely uh, going up. If the government tries to go to the Eurobond market, you will find that people are a little becoming a bit more knowledgeable in terms of mm, I think. It may not be as good as it looks. IMF does play a factor, and IMF has been playing the role of last lender because I think it's Martin who mentioned, uh, if you look at Kenya, $5 billion is held by international institutions. They don't want a contingent effect of Kenya defaulting so that their banks suffer. So IMF doesn't really love Kenyans. They love their own institutions better. So they are playing lender of last resort to make sure that there's no default which will affect $5 billion in their own markets. Not a, m- a lot of money, but it will affect the balances on their side. So IMF will definitely come in and try to make sure that they sort out that. But policies on the local economy, you'll find they rarely, one, increase incomes. In a labor-intensive economy like Kenya's, they will not increase the in- income of labor. They will not reduce inequality or uplift people from poverty. Now, we all know what happened to uh, Sri Lanka slashed taxes and they ended up in a mess, do hope none of the political formations and their talks of slashing taxes, making things affordable actually comes to reality, because then they will lead us in that route. So my own personal opinion, a new government actually has to sit down with people that have lent to Kenya and tell them that if we are not able to get this fiscal headroom, we might actually end up in a position where we will have to default. Because without that fiscal headroom, we are not going to be able to grow. But when we look at domestically, as I said, we should not worry about crowding out of the private sector because, honestly, banks, the size of the Kenyan economy, they don't have much projects to actually lend to that we can say feasible for them to lend to and get good returns on their money. Our main worry should actually be on the fiscal expansion, crowding out private demand, which is a more sustainable Demand for more sustainable economic growth. But if we continue with the same economic model that we have, we'll continue in this boom bust cycle four or five years of good growth. Everything just goes down. Our economy is not able to handle shocks, so to speak. Why? Because we have very low savings rate on a household portfolio level and on a national level. And if we are not able to build that resilience, it takes another simple thing to happen globally and we are back to square one. That's how vulnerable the Kenyan economy is. Thank you so much for that. Trying to see if there are
0: questions that have come in. So a couple. One is for Charlie on the impact, especially of Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine-Russian issue and how that has impacted the euro bond yields i bet you answered that but maybe that person wants a bit of clarity maybe we can repeat that again
1: yeah sure i unfortunately have to drop off the call soon but basically what happened was you saw a big spike in energy prices which pushed up inflation we also saw a big spike in food prices because people i think made a mistake really markets made a bit of a mistake thinking that just because Ukraine couldn't export wheat, maybe Russia couldn't either. And Russia a much more important wheat exporter. But they, they've just had a temporary export ban in Russia. I think Russian wheat exports, there's enough wheat supply in the world to have allowed food prices to come back down. But anyway, both of these factors together, wheat and oil, have driven up the inflation story. And that's forced the Fed to be hiking and That means if I was getting, say, 1.5% on US treasuries on 10-year, if I lent money to the United States government for 10 years, that's what I was getting at the beginning of the year. Now I'm getting around 3%. i would feel much happier getting twice as much yield in America than I was six months ago. And the trouble is, everybody else's borrowing is referenced against the United States. So if they're borrowing doubles, then people at the more fragile end of the spectrum, they see an even bigger than doubling of yields. So that's been the story, I think. And I just wanted to flag just for the last time, just well, was my last kind of comment, really, is that what I was talking about in The Time Travelling Economist is, and it is available on an e-link from the Springer website, but I was talking about what was going on in the 2010s, was that because there's a savings shortage in so many countries, governments were out there borrowing while they could uh, at cheap rates. And I was sympathetic to that. Because if there was a chance to build enough infrastructure to get growth to start powering ahead at seven, eight, nine percent a year, seven percent a year, your economy doubles every ten years. It goes up fourfold, goes four times bigger in twenty years if you can grow at seven percent a year. So if there's any chance that governments could borrow to build the infrastructure to do that, then I was sympathetic to them doing so. And I was saying a lot of governments, including Kenya's, was sailing close to the wind, to use a sailing analogy. The trouble with that, of course, is that when a bit of strong breeze comes in, the risk is your boat tips over. Now, what we're saying this year isn't just a small breeze. It's a bit of a hurricane. And that hurricane is tipping a number of countries over. And that's not something that should have been anybody's base case five years ago, was what are the odds that we're going to see COVID and supply shocks and Massive rise of inflation, such as we haven't seen for decades, and biggest rate hikes for thirty years. None of this stuff would have been anybody's central case three years ago, including Kenya's government. They wouldn't have been thinking about it either, and quite understandably so. But it's happened, and that's the situation we're living in now. And it was going to be a difficult twenty twenties anyway. It was going to be a tightrope, a balancing act to keep away from default, and one or two countries were bound to tip over anyway, just because bad policy would have been enacted somewhere in the world. But this hurricane is really threatening to take down quite a lot more countries. And I think the IMF is keen to be stepping in if it can, if governments are willing, because they've seen what happens when in the Asian crisis, what happened was just one country tipped over, Thailand, I think April, May 1997. And over the next two years, that that Asian flu, as it was called at the time, or Asian contagion struck country after country after country. I mean, Malaysia went down and Indonesia went down. Korea, one of the most successful developing economies of the 20th century, that went down in late 98, and it hit Russia, which defaulted, and then we saw on its internal debt, and then we saw Brazil peg its currency in early 99, and it didn't really end until Turkey devalued in 01, 02, and and Argentina had done the same and defaulted. This went on for five years the Asian crisis. And I think what the IMF is saying now is, if there's any way we can put a stop to this before it takes down the whole world economy, or at least a high proportion of the world population anyway, then if we can step in with a billion or two dollars here and a billion or two dollars there to try and restore market confidence, well, let's do it. So I think that's what we're going to be seeing more of in the next six to 12 months, is more concerted, thought out, kind of urgency from the IMF and the World Bank. And the World Bank president just a couple of days ago, David Malpass, was kind of pushing in this direction. So this story's not ending anytime soon. But to come back to what Martin said at the beginning, I completely understand why local investors would be thinking about buying the dollar bonds, better yields. And if there is a default at some point, then probably the the Kenyan shilling weakens significantly probably in that scenario. So Being in the dollar debt bonds, even if there's a default, may well be the better trade. So, but let's just hope that oil prices fall significantly and all the global inflation disappears and the Fed doesn't have to hike anymore. In fact, cuts rates actually, those are the sort of alternative scenarios that, again. No one's thinking about much at the moment, but would take the pressure off Kenya. I think I'm going to have to leave you there. Thanks so much for hosting me.
0: Thank you, Charlie. And bye. So I think we'll be wrapping up also soon. I'll go back to Ali and then Martin for thoughts on what Ali or what Charlie has said and Reginald's also.
3: It's a very interesting conversation, Eric, and well done for hosting it. I think we've had some real, I think Charlie called it a hurricane. And I think what we've seen is he's very correct in that description and i think the hurricane really is not only going, not only hurting us but it's also hurting a lot of g7 economies one of your people asked about the ukraine russia situation and i think the big macro development that i'm taking away from this is that we are seeing a big move into what i would call real commodities What is more valuable is a subscription to Netflix or the ability to extract a barrel of oil. And I think this is a fundamental global repricing where food, energy are going to continue to be priced higher at the expense of, I think, services. And in some contexts, that's going to affect us. So although we're seeing a very strong dollar for now, the strongest currency this year, counterintuitively, has been the Russian ruble. And I think these big macro trends are not going to go away. I think in our case, the challenge is really going to be how I'm listening to the politicians, listening to the debates, and no one really seems to be biting the bullet and telling the electorate, guys, we're going to simply have to cut expenses and cut them quite savagely. Otherwise, we're going to have a very, very big problem, which Reginald just described. And that we still seem to be living in this world, particularly at the policymaking level, where we think we can just throw money around. But I think that those days are numbered. And either we do it, or the likes of the IMF will do it on our behalf. And I think that's what is being priced into our eurobond, and I think that's what, come the election result, the politicians again to have to really level with everybody, and bring some kind of solution, because this sort of era of borrowing beyond our means, kind of inflating our GDP factor, I think it has come to an end, and that's what the eurobond market is signalling to me. Thank you,
0: Martin. Uh, there's a question here actually from Willie who Say, why can't Treasury float USD Eurobond in the domestic market, thereby retaining coupon payments locally? Is it, I think that actually makes it more of a local bond if they issue locally, right?
2: Yes, actually there was there was talk last year, and there were very advanced talks from what I gathered through Grapevine. Late last year for the GOK, that is Treasury, to issue a local denominated dollar bond. In my view, that will have been super wise and super fast because there are quite a large number of dollar liabilities and that will have saved them a lot of hoops. And the kind of volatility you're seeing in the eurobond market will really have been negated to say the least. Because they will have hit their target, they will have easily have gotten the billion dollars they're looking for. Because the number of large dollar liabilities and of that, they're able to warehouse that liability in the sheet, that is GOK's liability, domestically. So that making sure that everything is still warehoused within Kenya. That have unfortunately not materialize. Currently, their hands are tied, to be honest. I wouldn't want to be in Treasury's shoes at the moment given that how challenging it is at the moment to fund that kind of budget deficit where now your external borrowing target is essentially a target to achieve. Because when you look at where the yields are and any investor will essentially look at where exactly is the market pricing your risk. And of that, they will probably add just a tad of premium to that. So essentially government hands are tied. Well, you still have a very gaping hole in the budget. So some tough decisions are ahead of the new government, like Ali Khan and Charlie are mentioning that some really tough decisions lie ahead for the next incoming regime and it's going to be tough. But in my view, I still hold belief that there's a lot of value because I think one of the things I've come to realize that where local investors can take advantage of being here locally and taking advantage of this kind of, quote unquote, I'll say mispricings is because of the $5 billion is free floating in offshore, these are investors who just grab a headline, they see a headline, and then voila, they go, Kenya is burning, that's it, let's get out of here. Yet we are here, we can see, we can feel, in as much as it's tough, we can still see that things are still kind of moving, okay? We're still bandaged up, but we're not really super wounded that we're not walking or anything of that sort. So I think those are the kind of advantages that local investors should and are taking advantage of the fact that global guys will just read headlines and then take through the exit door, yet we're still here and we're able to see that, wait a second, it's not as bad as it is, and we can go ahead and tap into these kind of opportunities. So, I look forward to engaging any investor or firm or individual interested in investing and trading in this asset class. Like I keep on mentioning, that we really offer really sharp prices in this asset class across the whole of SSA. So, if you're interested in Ghana, Nigeria, Angola, please reach out. Just one more thing, just to show you which countries really trade, if you're really interested from a trading perspective. The the countries that I've noticed that are very, very volatile is Ghana and Nigeria. So those are very volatile and very liquid. And the Eurobond market space is still very, very liquid. It's very liquid uh, market space. Face value is just uh, $200,000. And you can always get a buy and a seller in in this market. So it's all about a matter of pricing. So thank you very much for hosting me. I believe that we have had a fruitful discussion. And I look forward to further engagements in, in this space. Thank you eric and thank you alikan and thank you everybody from wango capital all
0: right thank you seems Ali Khan fell off so maybe
5: quick thoughts from reginald and kevin and then you'll we'll close the spaces as we get into the election we should be looking at policies that increase labor productivity capital productivity and the productivity of land because that's what grows economies the capital markets in kenya i still believe are the weakest link to economic growth because they allocate all their money to government securities who is a poor or pathetic allocator of resources in the economy and if the capital markets cannot allocate resources to the most productive areas of the economy then productivity will not grow because of being starved of well-priced capital and I hope in the new dispensation, the capital markets will start playing the key role of not being the lender to the government, but being an allocator of capital to the market. And we also hope that the capital markets, we see a growth on the sell side. I think we have a predominantly biased buy side capital market. That means there's a level of innovation in terms of products to be able to oil and fuel this economic engine for Kenya. So those are things that. Honestly, we should be looking at interrogating in our politics, interrogating the counterparties that we use, the policy pushes that we push when we speak with central bank, treasury and the likes, so that we can actually have a sustained growth path in the long run and move away from these boom-bust cycles that we normally find ourselves in. Thanks, Eric. Kevin? Closing thoughts. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Martin,
4: Regent, and everyone else who's uh, spoken and contributed in these spaces. I have nothing much to add to that, other than I believe information should be democratized, and this is exactly what Mongo Capital has been achieving to do over the last couple of weeks, months, or years. It's been in present. So, for me, I believe uh, this topic on eurobonds is broader, and maybe we'll continue on a second episode where we uh, delve in depth. I've also been looking at, uh, to Martin's point, the Nigerians and Ghanas that are most SSS bonds. And it makes for an interesting read. So maybe we can talk much on the second episode of this uh, Eurobond in terms delve deeper into these markets, mostly sub-Saharan markets and maybe a bit of the Asian market. And I believe we can be able to learn much, much more from it. Other than that, for me, it's thank you and a good night to everyone.
0: All right. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Reginald, Charlie and Ali, who also left a little earlier. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Mango Spaces. Today, mostly we cover the eurobonds, And in the next two weeks leading out to the election, we hope to have two or three spaces that are mostly focused on just elections so we want to give the business perspective on this so we hope to be hosting a couple of people and especially in the last spaces on 5th which is the Friday before elections we hope to have have a few business leaders invited to speak about the expectations and just to encourage people to be peaceful throughout this time so look out for that soon is leading this initiative to help us be a bit more engaged and commit to a social responsibility of upholding the government in terms of telling them what kind of expectations do business leaders have for the next government. Keep an eye on that for the next two weeks of spaces as we also held the elections. And I know one of the key issues that is being discussed are issues to do with maybe... How to deal with the, the around half a trillion Kenya shillings worth of supply suppliers which have been uh, suppliers who have not been paid. How that can also be converted perhaps into a bond or something like that. A couple of these issues that we're keeping an eye on also euro bonds in terms of debt in terms of some of the promises, if they're achievable or not. We'll also delve a little bit into the manifestos and see if there are business implications uh, for either. Uh, so I think that's uh, something that's worth keeping an eye on.